Alright, welcome back to Bible Vibes. This is Jeremy. We're going to start Hebrews chapter 4. I'm taking a little break here lately, so I just want to go ahead and get back into it. We're going to run through quite a bit of scripture tonight. So Hebrews chapter 4, let's start in verse 1. Therefore, we must fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also did. But the word that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united with those who listened with faith. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my anger. They certainly shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, They certainly shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who previously had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience. He again sets a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day. After that, consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we all must answer. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. Okay, so chapter four is about the believer's rest. Uh, That's a predominant topical thing in chapter four. And we need to really look at what this word rest uh, consists of. Physical rest, yes. Spiritual rest, yes. All of the above, okay? Rest means that we have peace with God, okay? Rest means that we also have freedom from a bondage-like spirit in relation to the worship and service that we give to God. Rest means deliverance from the law or the the burden of mosaic observance, you know, all the old school things that come along. I'm not saying that they're done away with. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Rest also means that we are free to worship God according to the gospel. And it also means that the rest that we have is also the rest that God himself enjoys. So God enjoys peace because he is the prince of peace. Jesus is known as that. And so this whole chapter four speaks of the believer's rest. 
And as I said in previous podcasts before, there's a series of warnings in here. And I want to look at this one uh, where it says, let us fear. If any of you seem to have come short of it. Okay. The NASB says, therefore, we must fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Now, I kind of like what Adam Clark has to say on the come short part. Uh, and I, I look at a diff- bunch of different commentaries. I, I lean on the Holy Spirit really to reveal the things to me that I, I feel are uh, subjective to me. And Adam Clark has a really interesting view on this two words come short. He says that it is an illusion of which there are many in this epistle to the races in the Grecian games. He that came short was he who was any distance, no matter how small, behind the winner. In other words, second place is the first loser. There's no place for second place when it comes to our confession of faith or entering into this rest on the basis of obedience. I really like the way that he broke that down. Just the second place is the first loser. There's no room. We're winners. We are victorious in Christ Jesus. And and there's no room for second place. We all need to be in this race heading one way, finish the race that is set before you, meaning finish it in first place because the second place is still a loser. You know what I mean? We're not losers. We're overcomers in Christ Jesus. So. When I look at any portion of scripture, I like to kind of look at different commentaries. I like to do a lot of uh, reading and studying in the lexicon, figuring out what specific words mean. Uh, And there's a number of different things that go into an actual study. Uh, a lot of people just read the Bible, which is fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with reading, but there's not many people that study the Bible for themselves. You know, I don't study the Bible to get on here and do podcasts. If that's what I'm doing, I'm missing the point. I'm trying to bring glory to myself in that case and not to God. But anytime I study, I study for my own spiritual wealth, health. I, I don't study for anybody but me. Because at the end of the day, you have to work out your own salvation, right? Now, in verses 1 through 13, in chapter 4, there is a huge warning for everybody, for all believers and non-believers alike. And it, it really speaks to Israel's disobedience, and it serves as a warning for us that we need to fear God. There has to be this fear of God or a fear of Yahweh. And this needs to relate in a specific disposition towards God and his word, similar to what we see over in Job chapter 28, 28, for example. And to man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom and depart from evil and to depart from evil is understanding. So we have this. There's a benefit to fearing God. First of all, it brings wisdom and all of us need wisdom. We need wisdom more so than we need head knowledge 
And all of this begins with the fear of the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 11, come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is a thing that can actually be taught. Okay. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding. Have all those who do his commandments, his praise endures forever. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I would much rather have wisdom than to just have knowledge. Okay. Wisdom is really just knowledge applied. So there's a lot of people that have a lot of knowledge, but they really just don't know how to apply that knowledge. And biblical wisdom, (laughs) biblical knowledge should promote a lifestyle lived in wisdom. And all of this comes from us having a genuine fear of God. Okay. Now, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, there's a few things that we need to look at. We need to talk about the fear of God in the Old Testament because it's a little bit different. The fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is a little bit different than what I'm I'm speaking of. Okay, fear of God is like one of the biggest topical discussions or concepts in the Old Testament. Now, fear most people associate with like terror or dreadful things or, you know, just absolutely scared to death. Okay. This is not the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament. What the Old Testament describes as the fear of the Lord really just indicates uh, a sense of awe or reverence or in layman's terms, uh, respect for God. Now, to fear God is is. Is for us a. A showing or a or an expression of loyalty to God. We are loyal to him as believers and we are loyal to him and faithfulness. We are loyal to God and faithful to his covenant that he's made with us. Now, in the Old Testament, they were faithful to the Mosaic law. Okay, so those who actually feared God exhibited trust in the Lord and obedience came from the commandments. So they were they wanted to be as obedient to the law as they possibly could. Now, we know that for us, it's a little bit different. Uh, The fear of the Lord is actually a response to his holiness. Now, the fear of God is not a thing that we are. We're just scared of God, you know, because if you read the latter part of Hebrews, it says, therefore, we come to the throne of grace boldly, meaning we have great confidence that because we respect the Lord, we we have reverence and we just stand in awe of his presence. We can come to him confidently because we know him. That's the only way that I, I know that I can I can go in there and not worry about getting struck down is because I know him personally. You see what I mean? So the fear of God in the Old Testament, when we look at people's response to God's holiness, I mean, one of the greatest examples in that is in Exodus three, five and six. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place in which you stand is holy ground. And he said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So before Moses even came into the presence, 
God was like, look here, take your kicks off. This is holy ground. I'm not playing no games with you. And it says that Moses was pretty much in fear. Well, why was he in fear? Because the presence of holiness was right there. And Moses was just starstruck. I mean, out of left field, God just shows up in complete holiness. And Moses is like, "Uh oh, here we go. And then there's another example of this. We can go to Isaiah 8, verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Now, I like this verse because there should always in the back of your mind be this uh, one fear of God in a in the aspect of holiness and reverence and respect. But at the same time, there should also you should. You should have this little idea in the back of your mind that God is still the judge of all things. That kind of is a humbling thought because now you move into a place of dread, not really uh, like I don't want to be there. But (laughs) for some of us so-called Christians, uh, you may not want to end up being there. Just being real with you. Uh, You need to check yourself. I need to check myself every day. I'm not, you know, calling names and stuff, but we need to make sure that what we believe about God is what it actually is. Do I have an intimate relationship with the Lord? Is my relationship with the Lord strong? Do I spend time with him daily? Do I do more than just Christian discipline? Because I can read my word. I can pray. I can. But here's the thing. Do I actually know the one that I'm praying to? And am I reading in vain or am I just doing some really good thing that I think is going to, you know, be beneficial in my day to day? Oh, man, that should be a dreadful thought. And we should always keep these little things in the back of our mind. Like I said, Hebrews is a book of warnings um, and it's the boundaries in which Christians should live their lives, to be honest with you. And so if we look at a number of uh, different biblical writers, uh, they describe God as holy and another word that they use is actually the word awesome and i'm not talking about like awesome sauce i'm talking about this just the presence of god puts you in a position of you're just starstruck you have no words because words cannot express who god is let alone try to express the presence of god when Anytime we step into a position where we try to describe God, words break down and you can't because he is undescribable. There is no word that can really describe who he is, his nature, his character, the glory that he manifests, his holiness. There's no words. When we put words up against a good, holy, faithful, loving, just, merciful God, words cannot stand even words in themselves must bow down to Jesus. And it's hard because there's that language barrier. You know, we think, oh, we can just go out here and I'll just read John three sixteen and these people and they'll get saved. No, they need an experience. They need to experience holiness. They need to experience the presence of God the way that Moses experienced it. I really need that like every couple of days or so, to be honest with you. I wish I could get it every day, but I, you know, the Lord just kind of puts us in a place of silence sometimes. Uh, 
And so the term awesome translates from a word N-O-R-A, Nora, which is a form of the word Yara, which means to fear. Okay, to fear God also relates to God's greatness. The ultimate fact is that God is great. And we see this actually in Psalm 99, verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Now, the fear of the Lord is is one of the best things that we could actually uh, first learn to walk in. But two, just learn to study in the Bible. I mean, there's so much in the Bible about the fear of the Lord that is almost uh, breathtaking, if you will. So when we talk about Hebrews and we talk about the believers rest and the rest that we have from being saved and being redeemed and being justified and moving in sanctification, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all of that. The fear of the Lord brings wisdom. And I love the story in the Old Testament of King Solomon. He was asleep and God visited him in a dream. And the Lord asked Solomon, he says, Solomon, what do you want? And remember, he asked Solomon this while he was asleep, mainly because he didn't want the soul of the man to interrupt the spirit portion of Solomon. He wanted he wanted to really know what Solomon wanted. So he he came to him in the night while he was pretty much unconscious and said, Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon said, look, I need wisdom to lead your people. And God said, because you asked for this thing and you didn't ask for money or treasures or kingdoms, I will grant you wisdom. But not only that, because you asked how to lead my people, not only will I give you wisdom, but I'll make you the richest person that's ever lived because it's going to benefit my people. And so wisdom, when we fear the Lord, wisdom comes and then wisdom allows us to lead his people mainly myself. The fear of the Lord will help me to lead myself. When I partner the fear of the Lord with wisdom, and then I take that wisdom and listen to the Holy Spirit, I won't go wrong. Hallelujah. So (laughs) I don't want to get into the too much of the doom and gloom because it's not really doom and gloom. It's doom and gloom for those who don't believe or those who live a lifestyle that is contrary to what the Bible says. I mean, I don't want to get into that because Hebrews is not only a series of warnings, but it's also a lot of admonishing encouragement, you know, the building up of the saints. And I don't want to spend every single chapter just talking about the bad things because there are a lot of good things. And if we scroll down a little bit and we get back into uh, verse seven, he again, uh, he again sets a certain day today. And I'm not going to beat this to death because we've already done this every single chapter today. This is a present time book today. Okay. Saying through David after so long a time, justice has been said before today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So consequently, so consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, the story about Joshua that's a that's a pretty big story. Uh, it's Joshua chapter one, verses one through two. Uh, let me read that. So we all have a little bit of dialogue. So it came about after the death of Moses 
the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, his servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am going to give them to the sons of Israel. Okay. So Joshua became the leader of the Israelites after Moses passed away. Uh, Joshua then led this conquest of the Israelites into the promised land, which was the place of rest for God's people. It literally represented the place that Hebrews talks about. The promised land was a place of peace and it was a place of rest. And if we go back to Joshua and we look at 113, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you saying that the Lord, your God, gives you rest and will give you this land. So this promised land, the land of promise, because it was a promised land, God attached peace and rest to this one area. And so there was a battle to get to this place of rest, meaning that all this time, these people were the the only ones that made it were the ones that were diligent in getting to the promised land. Remember how many people made it? There wasn't many. There was not many that made it into the promised land. And this is a foreshadowing, if you will, of something that Jesus said. He said, wide is the way that leads to death, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And this is an early depiction. And Jesus, when he said that, I imagine in his mind, he was going back to this book of Joshua and he remembered all the things that happened with Moses and all the Israelites that were just traveling in the wilderness and they kept obeying and disobeying, obeying and disobeying. And then he finally gets to where Moses dies. And then Joshua is raised up to become this leader after Moses died. And he led this really great conquest to enter into a place of rest. The place of rest comes with struggle. You you have to struggle. Spiritually speaking, there is a struggle that happens before you enter that place of rest. And I know there are certain people that teach that oh, as soon as you are saved and all that, you don't have to do anything else as once saved, always saved. You're saved by grace. And this, listen, there's going to be periods of struggle and we have to make it through these trials by fire, through the power of the Holy Spirit, with endurance, with perseverance. We have to make it to the end. We have to be the people of God, not like those in Israel. Amen. So for the one verse 10, who has entered his rest, has himself also rested from his works. As God did from his. Now. The word Sabbath. This Greek word that's used here actually stresses uh, the nature of rest that that rest is a celebration. It doesn't mean just loaf on the couch and watch, watch Amazon Prime or Netflix all day. That's not what it means. It is a celebratory resting. So the, this kind of goes back to Hebrews twelve twenty two, which we haven't even got into there yet because this talks about Mount Zion and I'm going to go heavy into Zion Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to the Mount of Zion and to the city 
of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to the myriads of angels. Listen, this isn't going to be some place of just, no, this is going to be a straight celebration. Trumpets playing, angels singing. This is going to be like, boom, here you are. You made it to the promised land. Let's have this huge introductory party because you actually made it. You ran the the race. You fought the good fight. This is going to be like one of the best moments of everyone's life that enters into this place that God has called the promised land, but it's really just a place of rest. And so when we talk about Sabbath, consequently, there remains a Sabbath for the rest of the people or Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is what he's talking. There is a celebration for the people of God right now. We don't have to wait until we get there. We should be celebrating this rest that we have right now. Our mental health is at rest. Our lives are at rest. We're no longer in turmoil running with the world. We don't have the same cares as the world. We have a peace of mind. We have that peace which surpasses all understanding. This is the thing that the Bible speaks of. That is the Sabbath. It's not just you taking off on Sunday and not doing nothing all day. You know, that's not what it means. We need to know the words meaning. I mean, that's Bible basics 101. You need to know basic Bible terminology. What does sanctification mean? What does justification mean? What does redemption mean? What does salvation mean? Explain to me the gospel. These are these are basic things. And there's so many Christians that really don't even understand. They use these the this church lingo and they they use all that, but they have no idea what it really means. They just heard something that sounds good, but really it sounds a lot better when you know what you what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Anyways, got off on a little trail. So I want to jump down to verse 12 because this is a really powerful portion of scripture for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. Even penetrating as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is probably one of my favorite passages because <clears throat> a lot of people say well I don't need to read my Bible yeah you do you really do I need to I really need to read my Bible every day as often as I can there is no reason that I shouldn't read my Bible to be real with you now when we talk about this particular portion of scripture verse 12 for the word of God is living and powerful. This actually goes back to Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Okay. The Bible is not God. The Bible is not. You don't worship the Bible. We worship the one that wrote the Bible. When we get to heaven, there will be no Bibles. Don't get so attached to your Bible that it's borderline worship. Okay. The word of God is it, it 
it has the ability in itself because it is alive and it is well. It has the ability within itself to examine and judge the ones that hear it. God doesn't. (laughs) God has set it up in such a way. He doesn't have to come down here and stand in front of you and pass judgment. Okay, it's going to accomplish the thing that God set it forward to Isaiah 55, 11. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth? It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So when we read or when we teach or when we preach, the word of God in and of itself is able to examine and pass judgment on the ones that hear it, listen to it or read it. It's a double edged sword. There's it's going to swing one way and cut you. It's going to swing another way and cut you. It's going to use both sides as often as it can. (laughs) Now, this in itself is a weapon of our warfare, because when we talk about uh, spiritual warfare, for example, what do you pray? What, What what do you What are you using in your spiritual warfare? Because if you're not using the living word, which is a two edged sword, you're doing it wrong. The Bible in itself is the weapon that we use in spiritual warfare. So I need to be praying scripture. I need to be praying prayers that route demons. I need to be using the word of God to bring deliverance, to bring healing, to bring all the things that I want. God to be able to accomplish in the earth. I have to use the Bible to do that. I can't use Jeremy's words. My words ain't good enough. So the idea is that the word of God is the weapon that we yield, that we use, that we read. We allow it to cut us, to heal us, to to do all the things that God has intended for the word to do. And then The other thing is that in verse 13, it says there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open to lay bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. Pretty much we stand butt naked before God. Your clothes can't hide you. There's nowhere that you can go that you can hide from God. It doesn't matter what kind of hat you got on, how many shoes you got, what kind of pants you're wearing. Are you Gucci down? Do you got Versace? None of that matters because God looks right past that and you stand before him butt naked. You are laid bare. The rare Greek expression that we use here is one of those that (coughs) really means you're just standing there helpless. You ain't got nobody to help you. Nobody's coming to help you. Nobody will come to help you. And it's that sort of sense when you realize that I stand before God bare, helpless, that I really, really believe that you get to a place where you respect God, where you have this awestruck moment and you begin to develop reverence and you move in the fear of the Lord. That is the moment where you move in what God calls wisdom. Because we must give an account. Every one of us has to give an account to God. You do. I do. Your kids do. Your wife, your husband. Every single one of us is going to give an account to the one who has created us. But here's the thing. We have this great high priest. 
Jesus, the Son of God. He is the one that we lean into and lean on. He is the reason that we hold firmly to our confession. Because we don't have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weakness. Jesus will sympathize with your weakness. But that does not mean that he's going to throw you a pity party. Grow up. Be the man that God called you to be. Be the woman that God called you to be. He's not going to throw you some pity party. Just because it says he sympathizes with your weakness does not mean that he wants you to live a weak life. But we have this one who has been tempted in all things just as we are. Yet he has been without sin. Now it's because of Jesus, the greatest high priest to ever live and will ever live, that we are able to approach the throne of grace boldly, with confidence, and receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Remember previously I said that to be standing before him naked, it it gives you the sense of helplessness. But the NASB actually says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at our time of need. So even though we stand there as helpless individuals, we still know we have one that's going to help us. Amen. Jesus, the great high priest, the son of God, has been tempted in every way. And he sympathizes with our weakness, but he wants us to live victorious. Hallelujah. I appreciate you guys tuning in this week. It's been fun. This is Hebrews chapter four. We're going to move on into chapter five next time we get together. So I really appreciate you listening. Hit the like button. Hit the share button if you would. Leave me a comment. I appreciate you guys stopping by and I'll see you in the next one.